Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Sarah Archer. Sarah is a speaker, a coach and a writer and the host of the Speaking Club, uh, Speaking Club podcast. Today, we're really going to have a deep dive into the power of storytelling, why it's critical to get emotional buy-in before explaining all the logical stuff, how you can lead them to make the buying decision through your story, uh, to how you can drive deep transformation, because no one wants to make the, uh, the leap between the status quo and a tiny change. That's not transformative enough to justify letting go of the magnetism of the status quo. We're going to look at blind spots that prevent you from, that cause you to get in the way of the prospect and their decision to buy. The things that you do to self-sabotage or diminish yourself when you're telling your stories, when you're making decisions. So, Sarah, welcome. Thank you for having me, Marcus. There you go. So uh, nothing like being set up for a fall. Uh, there's a huge <laughs> amount that we're going to cover today. Uh, would you mind uh, telling the audience a little bit about your background, please? Yeah, sure. So, well, when I was younger, I always wanted to perform, wanted to be an actress, went off to drama school at 18, tried to get into the RADA. They told me I was too green. I needed to go and get experience. So I went off, got a job and then got trapped in the world of work and money <laughs> for quite a long time. And uh, it sort of uh, went to Germany when I was 18 and uh, sorry, just my 21st birthday, I was there. Did IT, went into a works council. So got involved in a bit of employee relations stuff over there, which, which sort of made me come into the world of HR. And uh, I was in HR for a long time, but about 20, just over 20 years ago, I, I went out one night and uh, to a stand-up comedy gig and was allowed to have a go at telling a joke, did that. And then alongside my HR career for quite a long time, I've doing stand-up comedy and sort of writing and performing. But in 2010, I think it was, I'd reached HR director level and I was working tremendously long hours. And I realized I'd, I wasn't doing anything I wanted to do. I wasn't seeing my family and I wasn't really happy. And so I engineered a way out, left, started a business, started teaching people how to do comedy, stand-up comedy, and ended up getting a lot of business people on the courses, but treated my business like a hobby because I had this financial cushion and, uh, and ended up you know, not doing very well, went back into corporate and then realized, again, I wasn't happy. So I decided to, to find a way to get good at what I'd been bad at when I had a business, which was marketing, influencing, selling. And I can speak and I can tell a story, but I didn't understand the psychology of selling. I didn't understand good copy for sales. So I did all that stuff. I was working in a senior HR job and hustling on Fiverr, doing copywriting jobs for people to, to build those skills up. And also wrote my first play, did that, and then left again in 2017. And since 2017, I've been focused on helping people discover stories as a way to sell, and particularly in speaking, but also in content marketing too. So that's what I do today, yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this. I know um, a theme that uh, is important to you, and it's uh, come up with Michael Brody Waite and various others, are the masks that we wear. 
Mm. Talk to me a little bit about that. I'm very much, I think one of the key things that's important to me about speaking is that you are yourself. And in my field there, and there are a lot of speaking organizations out there that want you to be someone else when you're on stage. And, and I think for me, it's in that being you and, and yes, we're all flawed and, and being passionate is more important than pretending to be, you know, your concept of a, of a speaker or a presenter. And just, yeah, that, that I, I know authenticity, authenticity is an overused term these days, but it's really, for me, it's about using your personality and, you know, your passion to sell. But there is a fine line between passion and preaching as well, which is something that we wanted to talk about. So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I, I'm, I'm curious about the type of masks that people wear. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so, I mean, I did a, I, I did a TED, TEDx talk around this subject and the masks that I have worn in my life, you know, you know, in terms of being, you know, at work, always trying to present what you think people want you to be to the world rather than what you want to be. And, you know, we do have these different masks that we wear, mask of mother, daughter, senior HR leader or senior leader in a business. And it's really you know, the, the conclusion that I came to, you know, the whole journey that I went through in terms of, you know, what does it mean to be authentic is, you know, is just about being present and being connected. That's not to say just live life without intention or without any sort of plan and, you know, having goals and stuff. And I still struggle with this. You know, I'm, I'm away with the fairies a lot, uh, always thinking, but, you know. Good place to be. <laughs> it is. But being present, and this is what's so important as well when you're on stage or in a, you know, speaking in a webinar or whatever it is, is being connected to your audience and to the moment, having done the prep, you know, having done all that planning and sort of what do you want to get out of this, but being connected so that you're really paying attention to them and, you know, what they're giving back. And that work, and that was also true when you're acting and performing on stage. You know, that's something being, and, and doing stand-up comedy, reading the audience, being connected to the audience. So there's there are all these masks, and, you know, it's really hard to let go of them. But, uh, you know, it's the, it, it, you, the most powerful conversations and experiences happen, I think, when we are in flow, connected, being mindful and present. So it's a bit of a trite answer, but that's kind of what I found when I looked into this. It's really interesting because I see so many people failing to make use of their own resources and talents, then further either sacrificing or suppressing them because of the culture that they operate in, where managers have a command and control responsible they think that that's their responsibility and the net result of that is that they're either taking on or repeating 40 to 60 percent of the work of their team now for one human being to do that for an entire team seems to be rather self-sacrificing but the stench of burning martyr is quite commonplace at middle management level with the, I'm trying my best, it's so hard, I'm run ragged. What what I'm curious about is at a management level, what do you teach people to do to tell stories in order to enable them 
to do their proper job, which is to help other people to achieve their full potential. So I think, I mean, one of the things, you know, whether you're telling what I call snackable stories, which are great in a management setting, or you're doing a 45 minute keynote, you've always got to be put, you've got to start with your audience and it requires you to do some prep, but what in, and what is the message that you want to get across? And, 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 you know, also comes back to this, that concept in NLP about, you know, the intention of the communication is the response that you'll get. So there's a simple structure that I teach, which is problem, anecdote, takeaway. And that is sort of setting out the problem, finding a story that illustrates, you know, the transformation that, you know, it could be a a short story, but illustrates the point you want to make. And then you, you give the takeaway. But I think when you're a middle manager, you know, you can do a lot of damage to people. And I've been there myself. Like, I hate conflict. I, you know, and I, I, when I was managing teams, having those difficult conversations, it's really hard because, and most of the time you just want an easy life. But if you don't, you, you do more harm than good if you don't call people out on things that aren't right and help them. And stories are just a great way for them to have that aha moment without, you know, it is it is about leading them to the answer rather than telling them. And, you know, as a leader, as a manager, if you can get someone to see the answer for themselves, and that's, you know, it's the art of good coaching as well. And that's what managers really need to be, I guess, these days. If you can get it, just, it's so much more powerful. And you might not get it in the first story, but like sometimes you have to, to tell the message a few times. But that's the thing is like, how can I, what is it that I'm trying to get across to them? And also I think question whether, is it my issue or is it an actual issue? Because we tell ourselves stories, something happens, we make it mean something, we behave accordingly. And sometimes those things can be self-fulfilling prophecies. So I think it's important that we're self-aware enough to say, is this an actual issue or is this, is this my issue? And what do I want that person to, you know, if, if it is an issue, what do I want that person to take away to, you know, to believe as a result of this interaction with me for, for their betterment and, and for the team and so on? So I don't know if that helps, but I think it's, it's a, it is whether it's selling or, you know, selling a point or an idea to someone, it is about using stories as a vehicle to allow them to see something for themselves through that story. How do you provoke questions that an individual asks themselves through story so that they come up with the answer themselves? For me, this comes down to something which I call audience intimacy. So, I mean, I work a lot with entrepreneurs. I do work with some corporate leaders. And you've got to start with them and putting yourself firmly in their shoes and thinking about in relation to the problem or solution or whatever it is that you're going to be talking about, what are the myths, the mistakes, the assumptions, the beliefs, the pain that people have here? And you, when you talk to that, you know, in the problem and the pain, you've got to get underneath the surface level problem to the pain. You know, what's driving this behavior? What's driving, and I was off using the example of leaves on a lawn. If someone's got leaves uh, leaves on a lawn, you know what's the problem here? 
and then using the five wives to get down to the fact that actually they're worried about you know, if they don't clear up the law and it's going to look bad, their neighbours will think badly of them and it comes down to status, you know, and all that sort of thing. But if you can sort of tap into these fears and desires and also use curiosity as levers. So cliffhangers and gaps are a great way to provoke questions. So people love to hate having gaps. So, um, you know, that's a great way to, to provoke questions. But really thinking about you know, if you're talking to an individual, it'll be about them specifically. But in order to really make something powerful and provocative, you need to know what their fears and desires are. And it's not to misuse that fear, but you know, as the, you know, I heard this myself on a on another podcast, and it's a great story. We will, we're not motivated enough by desire; it's fear that motivates us to make change. So your job is to create a burning platform through that story. And the story of the, the person that worked in the massive skyscraper and they have an office, another skyscraper directly opposite. And I go up to the person, they're in their office and say, I'm going to put a plank between this building and the building opposite you. And I'm going to give you 500,000 pounds. Are you going to, going to crawl across that plank? And they'll say no. But a million, no. And I use this exercise and most of the time people say, no, it doesn't matter what amount of money you ask. There's no safety equipment. It's very high. Uh, there's a breeze and whatever. And they say no. But then you just change two things about that scenario, which is that the building you're in is on fire and someone, you know, something's falling against your office door and it's wedged shut. Now, do I need to pay you to crawl across that plank to go to the other building? And the answer is no. And that's because, unfortunately, uh, fear is a bigger motivator than desire so as long as it's with good intentions that's another way to sort of provoke the questions it's about avoiding that thing that they don't want I've long held that belief firmly as I've grown a little bit older and maybe I'm going the wrong way because I'm told that you're meant to get more conservative and reactionary as you grow older I seem to be going a bit fluffy but I always used to tell people that pain outsells gain 12 to 1. Mm. Now, what's really interesting is if you understand someone's motivation, understand what really, really drives them and why they're doing it, for whom they're doing it, and why that's important to them, then you uh, present them with the potential to apply that you know, strength to multiple opportunities in rapid succession. So they do great work when they do it. They love it. Time flies. They get great feedback. And when it's over, they can't wait to do it again. How good could that get? I agree with you. That's great. And if you've got the time to do that, that's brilliant. But if you're trying in the world that I work in, where you're trying to get someone's attention in order to serve them and show them there's a different possibility and you've got a finite time, then I think it's important to be provocative, but in the right way. And so that, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm completely with you on that if you've got the time to do that. But if you've got to get their attention in the first place and when attention is so scarce these days and there's so, you know, so we're just bombarded, how do you get people to stop? That I absolutely concur with. I think one of the challenges that I see, and I'd be curious about your take on this, is that 
most vendor organizations don't take enough time to think as the customer. They don't think about the true customer journey. The customer journey is they turn up to the squawk box, place their order, drive forward, tap their card, drive forward, pick up their money, drive off. The reality, if you've got kids, and many of you will have heard my parody of uh, Colin Shaw's version of the McDonald's journey, is it's massively different. It starts way before the journey to get to the point where they're ready to speak in the squawk box is lots of painful steps. And the best bit is tapping the card because it's the least painful part is having your walletectomy. And then you've got the whole series of uh, pain to suffer later. So if we don't think as the customer and we don't anticipate what it's going to be like when they take on the risk, having gone from buyer to customer, that's where we create the conditions for them to stick with the status quo. So I'm really interested to find out um, in terms of planned, intentional storytelling uh, that talks about problems that they can expect and how we are the expert in helping people get through that dark moment. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a mistake that a lot of people make in not sharing the possible obstacles and challenges that people will face you know particularly again in in, in my world if you want to make a ch- someone to make a change and you show them what's possible in the world that i give you give a lot of value and then you you give people a glimpse of what's possible and perhaps some tips and then they go, right I, I could probably do that if you don't show them what's coming up and what they're going to have to get over and, and, and face, then you're doing them a disservice because you've got to show them what those next steps are and so that they can see the gap. And that's where your sort of product or service comes in to help them. I mean, they can't, people can do things on their own in, in my world, but you know, if they want it done quicker, faster, then it, that getting your help is, is the important thing. So I think it's, you know, and and also it comes down to customer experience as well. When it's so much easier to sell to an existing customer, you know, than it is to get a new customer, you have absolutely got to look after them through those challenges as well. If they are, if you if they have bought from you, you know, creating that frictionless experience as much as possible and getting them a result is the best way to sustain your business going forward. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know if I've answered the question, but that's, those my, that's my sort of take on what you said. I think story ha- stories are so flexible and they're way more powerful than trying to explain or preach. Yes. Um, and what I'm really interested in is, uh, again, is how do we use story uh, to convey a difficult message Rather than just entering into a difficult conversation and confronting it, how do we soften the blow uh, without softening the impact? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Again, I mean, and I think it also comes down to what your perception of a story is, because people have this, you know, thought this lofty, involved thing, and a story can be a really simple anecdote that gets across what you're trying to say. A little short story I tell sometimes is about this chicken called Magic Mike. It's not it's not I, a Channing Tatum yeah. film. It's about this 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 chicken in the 1920s 
And yeah, you may have heard the story. So the so the farmer takes the chicken, you know, he's cutting their heads off. And this chicken, you know, the chicken's brain is actually going into its neck and it misses it. And instead of this chicken running around for you know, a few seconds, minutes, whatever, this headless chicken lives for 18 months and ends up being a sideshow fair star. But the point is this, you know, that so I use that story to talk about you know, having no strategy, running around like a headless chicken, you know, so it, it's, it just, it, you know, it's immense. I saw, so again, I would sandwich that between an issue that I see with speakers is they will not spend enough time strategically thinking about where their audience is, where they want to take them to and all that good stuff. And, you know, and having no strategy is an issue. And I, you know, perhaps we'll talk to, about that story and then the takeaway but it doesn't have to be an involving. It can be a little anecdote that just makes people think. But in order to tell the right story, you need to know where they are and what matters to them and where you want to take them. And there's so many things around, you know, one of the pieces of content that I talk about in terms of audience intimacy is, and you know, in relation to marketing as well, is this company that created flavoured pet water that failed because they hadn't thought for any best will in the world, the most loving pet owner is not going to want, you know, ro- roast dinner flavored water for their pet. But, you know, so, but it makes you think. And, you know, so I don't know if that answers the question, but that's how I do it. You know, is I look at in my life, have I got a personal story that fits this message that I want them to take away? I was told one only this morning right. um, by uh, uh, the CEO of uh, one of my clients, and he was very proud because they just won best L and D provider by personnel today, and they beat uh, the likes of Vodafone and B, uh, BT and various others. And what was one of the stories that was taken up, and uh, the LSE followed since um, through the uh, fully documented academic study. One of the stories that uh, got them um, to win was a senior manager from the Royal Mail. Now, for those of you in the US, the Royal Mail is a very ancient and a fusty bureaucratic unionized organization. And they were going through a massive change program that wasn't working. And they implemented this thing called operational coaching, which means that coaches in the moment coach on the job so that rather than telling and sharing their knowledge, they use the moment as a teaching moment. And this senior manager was very proud of himself because he'd uh, actually applied the approach. And uh, one of his team who'd been working for him for three years came to him and um, said, I have a problem. And he coached her through uh, working out three ways that she might be able to fix it for herself. Two days later, she came back with fully costed, fully documented, mapped out plans for all three solutions, identified exactly who they needed to have on side, what resources they would need. And he was delighted until he realized that for three years, this incredibly bright individual uh, had uh, not been tapped as a resource uh, until that single moment. And when you consider the impact that would have across an entire organization where 16 to 20 times a day, managers on average are being interrupted. So the, the key question then is, if you were able to do this at scale, what effect could that have on your organization? Yeah, absolutely. 
and you know and then and that story you know and I so it, again if he, it, that story with a great opening which is sometimes we you know we don't look around to see what's in front of us and the resources that we have either in ourselves or in our teams and I want to you know so that would be the opening and then that anecdote and then the takeaway you know with and the takeaway could be what you know like the question that you posed it can be all sorts of things but the beauty of these stories and that story and and which is what I teach is that they can have so many different angles like that could be having an angle around untapped resource that also could be having an angle around the power of coaching to get the best out of your so one story can have so many different angles which means that you're not constantly reinventing the wheel but that you know it's thinking about what is the again what is the problem what is the pain what's the solution uh for this you know and and, you know when i store my stories i i store them with tags so that I am when I'm looking for something on leadership or confidence or change or whatever it happens to be, then I can I can find these stories and I know with the structure that I have that I can qu- quite quickly use them to to make the point that I want to make, and they can become such powerful tools. You are absolutely right. Yeah. So talk to me about that structure then. So I call it my PAT structure, and it's something I teach it in detail in something that I run, I run a free, which I call snackable story challenge. And, um, I, I teach people how to find these stories and, and also start using the metaphors and the analogies in the stories to make them more powerful because, you know, the metaphors in themselves are really powerful. You know, when I was trying to sell a, a new system to staff, I compared the old system to a, a Trabant and the new uh-huh. system to a Ferrari and just sort of planting that seed in their head. You know, that's already starting to position things in their minds. But um, so, yeah, this this challenge uh, helps you find the stories, create the stories and then deliver them. But it's it, it's effectively PATS, which stands for problem. So you set out the problem and that problem is at sort of the meta level. So, you know, what is the problem you're talking about to your audience, whether it's employees in a team or if you're doing a webinar, whatever it happens to be. And then the anecdote and the anecdote can be a personal story from your life. It could be something you read on the news this morning. It, you know, it can be something, uh, something you heard about a friend, a case study, whatever. And these snackable stories are normally just like three to five minutes. And then you have the takeaway. And that takeaway is, is what, you know, you learned, you know, what the takeaways on the broader level. And in the middle story, there's got to be a little bit of transformation. So a before and after. It doesn't have to be massive, but shows that sort of the point that you want to make. And then the takeaway just reinforces that. And then ideally a call to action, which could be a question for people to think about for themselves or if you want them to do something at the end. So it's Pat, problem, anecdote, takeaway. Um, and that's the structure. It's, it's simple, but it just helps you keep things in mind. So tell me this then. If we look at the difference between men and women telling stories, what differences have you noticed? Well, certainly actually stepping up to tell a story, thinking a story is worthwhile. That's so I see in, in the world of speaking, there are far fewer female speakers than men, partly because they stop themselves, I think, thinking that they've got something worthwhile saying. But that, you know, that's something I think it's changing, but I've seen evidence of it. Whereas men will will have a go. 
and just sort of you know, finding value in their lives. You know, I, and I, what I always say to people, especially to women, is that the, the TV industry is making an absolute fortune out of reality TV. And people want to, to see stories that can happen to them. You know, as, you know if, if, the queen, if the Queen's told a story about her butler bringing her tea in the morning, people can't relate to that. Who's got a butler? You know, but if you tell a story from your life, you know, that people can relate to and take something away from and mirror their situation in it. And, you know, then it makes it more powerful. So I spend time telling women that their stories are worthwhile, that they have got an important message to share and that they should be the ones to share it. So, so I see, I see that in women more than men. And I think, I think the tendency as well, not to sort of men can be a little bit more preachy than women, I think, because of that confidence thing and being certain, more certain that, that, that they're right. It's a generalisation, but it's it's just which so I... So hypothetically, if one were to know someone like that, how can you help them become more self-aware? Through telling them a story. I mean, <laughs> it would literally be... There's no reference to them, but, you know, using that pat structure, do you know what? I saw someone the other day and they had such an important point to make, but they really alienated the audience because of the way that they communicated that point across and then sort of going into a bit more detail about it. You know, and I spoke to someone afterwards and, you know, they, they felt patronized and preached to rather than, you know, have in that person missed the opportunity to share their story in a way that allowed the message to come across rather than being shoved down people's throats. So I might say something like that, or I might say, tell them, you know, something about the, the most powerful way to get across the point is not to force it down someone's mouth, is to, you know, so tell a story like about that or something that I'd read. So, yeah, so I, I guess that for me, that would be the way to do it. And, you know, as I say, they, so the takeaway then would be, you know, I, I, how do you feel? How do you manage that? Do you, do you, how do you get that balance right between preaching and sharing in a way? And that might get them to think about it. So I don't know if that helped. Okay. Well, again, let's, let's try and dig a little bit deeper into specific scenarios where storytelling could be really powerful. So trying to drive change into an organization. A lot of the people that I tend to work with are trying to deliver deep transformation, but the allure of the status quo is so strong. And the difficulty presented by, or to sell this, you know, this kind of product or service, even though it's going to be really good for them, they struggle to make the intellectual shortcut between uh, a better future and the status quo. Now, I'm curious whether telling stories is a way of seeding an idea to catch people when they are in passive looking. They're just kind of making space and looking to learn how. Because to, to my mind, I think story really has incredible power then to create an anchor. And it's far more memorable than trying to market stuff. Yeah, absolutely. 
I, you know, just mentioning about change programs. So I, my whole world of work was around change programs, transformations, transfer, you know, by, so I saw a lot of it bringing in big shared service centers and, and, but what was, you know, and I was a project management qualification, but all these qualifications uh, and systems uh, for project management don't take into account the emotional people side of things enough. <laughs> you know, this is the thing. And so you, you've got to sell the change to the people so that they'll get that emotional buy-in, which comes back down to what, what I was talking about before, which is creating that platform. But in terms of story, you're absolutely right. We, are, we go into a trance-like state when we hear stories. That's why hypnotherapists use them to, mm-hmm. to get change as well. So we are more receptive as long as you can get past our crock brain because before we can get anything into our system, you've got to get past the crock brain, which is almost like the bouncer. To, to so that, that's what we'll get between you and audience intimacy then. Yeah, and this is why you've got to get, when I say you need to get attention, you've got basically this, the oldest part of our brain, this crock brain is the fight or flight thing. And it basically says, if it's not going to kill me, ignore it. If it's not new and exciting, ignore it. And if it's complicated, try and paraphrase it and send it up. You've got to make that pay attention to get past that brain and then up to the neocortex. That's why people go onto websites. And, and also the crock brain is, is looking after your energy. So if something is too difficult, it will move on, which is why websites don't get, uh, you know, if you can't keep people's attention in three seconds, they're, they're gone because that crock brain is, is saying no. So once you can get past that, and that's why where the sort of the the sort of fear thing comes in or curiosity, then you can sort of tell that story. So you've got to get past that first, and and because curiosity, you know, this is the way Facebook works so well with the notifications is because it's combining fear and desire in terms of curiosity. So the sort of worry that I'm missing out and what and and sort of I want to know what's going on. So yeah, so change, you know, getting people to see the world, you know, it is really looking at what's the world like if we carry on? What's the world like if we change? If you can sort of set that picture out for people and start future pacing them in those different scenarios so that they can see for themselves, then, you know, that's the sort of start of a change. You know, why do we need to change? And then what's the future like if we do? What's the future like if we don't? What do you want more? That's a way to get things. So it's it's using stories and future pacing to create those pictures. For those of you who are not familiar with future pacing, essentially you take people to the future in their imagination and then you uh, bring them back to today so that they can see what it would be like and experience it because the brain doesn't differentiate between memory and imagination. And then when you bring them back to today, your job is to then create a pathway between that better future and where they are now. If you can help them create that and uh, co-develop that story and that narrative that they'll then start to run, then you get closer and you become their partner. So there's real valid, uh, value in doing this. But like uh, Sarah said earlier, you've got to be patient. You've got to step back and you've got to look at 
the reality of the market that you operate in, your place in it, how you perceive yourself versus how your customers perceive you, because that's what your brand really stands for. And you've got to make sure that when you're telling stories, that it continues to feed that narrative, mm. that inner dialogue. Mm. That's where the real power in stories is from my, my experience, because people then see themselves being able to achieve stuff. So when we're talking about change programs, I think a really important set of stories to capture early are the ones that in the, let's say you're doing a three-year transformation program, the ones that hitting those milestones in six months and taking people through that journey, helping them to express their experience of it, that then consolidates that the strategy is sound to the rest of the organization. So long-winded way of getting to my question, which is in terms of developing as a leader, how important is it that you capture the stories of the people who are experiencing the outcomes of the decisions that you and your leadership teams have made? I mean, really, really important. I mean, in the world that I work in, you know, it's effectively social proof, you know, because, you know, sometimes if, you, if you're the leader saying these things, people listen, but do they believe? The same as if you, you know, if you're a, a guru saying, you know, oh, it's easy to do this. People will are interested, but it's only when someone that's not too much further ahead than them shows that it's possible that they really start to believe. And that's why in Google review, you know, reviews, uh, trust, trust advisor, you know, all of those things, all of that social proof and in an organization, champions, change champions, if they're used correctly, can be so powerful because it's like saying, yeah, we took the leap of faith. It's true what they said. It does work. You know, my I feel different. I, I operate differently and so on, that people then start to, to, to believe it and, and you get that tipping point of people moving forward. So absolutely, whether it's in a, a sales context from, you know, reviews or in an organizational context with change champions, that is the social proof that puts puts you know makes people take action. It's also de-risking the sale in a sense for people. You know that's an important part of the customer journey. If you don't de-risk the sale for them, then you'll you'll potentially lose it because every time you know you mentioned it when they tap that thing to buy something, it's it's a lot potential loss of status for us. Because if you know if we're if we're wrong, then you know it's not even the money that's lost; it's the status and you know whatever context. So this is just about de-risking that decision for them to move forward and completely step into that future. Well, it's really interesting as you go up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you move away from the material, and it yes. all ends up around status because yes. self-actualization is uh, also uh, I like to view it as legacy. And so you've got self-actualization and legacy, you've got self-esteem, you've got belonging, mm. and then you've got security, and mm. then you've got survival. So what's really interesting is how often you hear people who claim to be motivated by the material things, but actually when you dig deeper, more often than not, those are people who've never come from any form of money, and they're uh, associating something that's the move away from poverty. But it's interesting how that then uh, colors behavior within an organization. So that then brings me to a slightly convoluted thought, but the company story. 
I'm really interested how you uh, encourage people to develop a really good company story that everyone is able to then relate to others. So for external or internal? That's a really good question. You pick. Switching to my HR hat for an internal thing. One of the things that I saw, you know, in some of the companies that I worked in and other companies, a mistake that they made was not making the connection between what people did and the change that they, and the mission, you know, and I hate using the word mission because I think it's overused, but what difference can we make in this world as a business? And back, you know, I think then this is going to come more and more into the frame because people are changing what's important to them, you know, and this idea that, you know, we're working towards doing something that is going to, make a difference and making the connection between someone putting the widget on something and, you know, saving someone's life or, you know, improving someone's life, making that connection stronger is a story that needs to be told to employees and, you know, and show and and sharing that with them and bringing them into that journey because it makes what they do more important. And I know that it's, you know, it's it's been said before, but so many people don't do it still, is, you know, making them their sort of purpose clear. And also, even if you've got a small business, you know, having that mission message and say, if I make this change to enough, you know, if I help enough people make this change, what impact could that have on the world? And what do I stand for? And what, what you know, what's a non-negotiable? Um, that's really important because I think, you know, it's important to say who you want to work with and who you will do business with as much as it is to say we won't do business here. And those sort of, the sort of moral um, purpose of an organization is going to become so much more important and is becoming so much more important. You know, I, I hate people, I hate, you know, there's bandwagons, people are jumping on left, right and center. At the moment, it's the environment and sustainability. But I think the audience or customers are savvy enough to see through whether it's a convenience and done for the right reasons or it's a belief that the organization and the people in the organization have. So I think, you know, I love those brands that, and this is now the external that have the story. So there's a great sunglasses brand called Tens. And they are, when you look at their story on their website, they are photographers that wanted to make sunglasses that showed the world, you know, what's possible is, you know, so they make lenses for sunglasses that, that, that show the world differently. And it's that photographic background. And of course they, they're targeting the whole way that the movies that they make to, to sort of tell this story, they're targeted at, demographic young people that want to travel the world and see things differently and all that good stuff but that's a great example of telling a story and positioning and I love you know I'm always using companies like Dollar Shave Club you know and and the great you know using that story in humor and almost you know the cheekiness of that I mean it doesn't suit all brands but it works and Squatty Potty is another obvious example of a great story but I think that there's got to be congruence between the face internal and the and you know the story and the and the facial presenting internally and the story and the facial presenting externally. And this is where employees in a company can also are smart enough to know you're talking it, but you're not walking it. 
And that's why people leave organizations. If there is this incongruence between what you say and what you do, that doesn't wash anymore. Very fair. Okay, so final question before we wrap up, and it is a bit of a shitty one, so buckle up. Um, I'm curious about how you teach people to tell the story of themselves to themselves, that inner narrative, that inner dialogue. Tell the story of that. Could you explain a little bit more? Yeah. Well, in my experience, um, most of us, well, all of us have an inner dialogue. Oh, yes. And the inner dialogue, if you had a friend who spoke to you the way you speak to yourself, you'd probably punch them on the nose and tell them to foad rather quickly. So my my question is this, how do we develop a strong story that's based in reality, but builds us and empowers us to become our better selves? That's really interesting. So I talk about this a lot, and there are dimensions of this that come up in the work that I do with people. So just from a very practical aspect of, of looking at this, there are two sides to us. There's the creator and the critic. And so often when people that I'm working with sit down to find stories, whatever they're doing uh, that's creative and needs you know, them to be free and uninhibited and imaginative, they need to be in creator mode. But what happens so often is that creator and critic, you know, they use them at the same time and they're brilliant tools, brilliant aspects of us. You know, one's the parent, the editor, that, you know, the critic has a great role to play but the creator and the critic don't work well together. So, so important to separate those things. If you're sitting down to write a book or write a speech or come up with a change, or whatever it is, you need to separate those two aspects of you. So I always say physically have a space for the creator and physically have a space for the critic. So uh, very interesting. So but like the six chairs exercise similar to that okay yeah and even when you're rehearsing you know when I teach people to speak I say when you're rehearsing when you step on and like when you step on stage you've got to leave the critic off stage because the moment you'd start second guessing yourself and that critical voice comes in I call mine Arnold then it's no good so but it's really interesting so I didn't realize until I was in my 40s that I didn't that the voice in my head wasn't me. And I know this sounds strange potentially to some people. Some people already had that sort of aha moment and that I didn't have to listen to it and I could choose to ignore it. And because it's, it, it is, you know, I've done work with sort of looking at Eckhart Tolle, looking at a lady called Byron Katie, and all of these people would, you know, Eckhart Tolle calls this voice the pain body because it, loves pain and it only has power in your future and your past so which is why the present is moment is so important and when we're in flow this voice is so quiet when we're doing something we love it's quiet so it's it's about managing that voice and one of the other ways that I really found a way to manage this is I love playing golf when I first started to play golf I was chucking my clubs around left right and center um, and beating myself up like every you're you're, that was rubbish you're an idiot blah 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 and then I listened to a golf psychologist called Bob Bratella and Bob's fabulous he is Uh, for for every word that says golf or golfer just replace sales and salesperson yeah exactly and 
And so when, uh, you know, it's focused on the process, not the outcome. So I had these things and be your own best friend on the course. And yeah. so I took these onto the course with me and, and my, you know, my, I stopped worrying about the outcome. I detached from it. I was not kind to myself as I was playing and yeah. it made all the difference in the world, you know, and it's so it is hard you know that voice doesn't stop you can quiet it meditation's good but it's also realizing there's something else that I I picked up when I was 40 when I had that aha moment about the the voice wasn't me is that I see now that I make up stories so something happens I make it mean something I create a story around that if I tell myself that story enough times it becomes a belief that belief limits what's possible for me because I'm living my future based on that belief. There's a lot of stuff there, but you know, I did a whole stand-up hour show on this called Bum Fluff and Brimstone about the things that I'd done in my life because I told myself a story about something that had happened. Is that so, on YouTube anywhere? And I don't think so, 2011, but um, I, 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 when I did stand-up comedy shows, I was really keen to, like my second show was called Constant Craving and it was about when I get to my deathbed and I look back, I'm not going to say I needed an iPad, I'm going to say I didn't live didn't have this experience. So I had these lofty ambitions for the, for the stand-up <laughs> comedy shows, but now I put them into the plays that I write and it works much better so I can make them funny. But the but this is the thing, you know, who's in control of your life? So when I have, when you have something, normally when you've got a hot button come up, there's a story that you've, there's something's happened, you've told yourself a story about it. And the, the question that you need to ask yourself about that story is, is it true? You know, and what does it, what does, this is comes down to Byron Katie's, the work, you know, the four questions. Is it true? Is it really true? How does it make you feel when you have that thought or tell yourself that story? And who would you be without it? And then the turnaround, really powerful questions. And people can go to Byron Katie's website and have a look at the work. And I came across it because when I was made an HR director, I believed that my CEO didn't appreciate me. And so I had an executive coach and he said, he, you know, I said, he doesn't, he doesn't appreciate me. He said, how did you know that's true? And I said, and I came up with all the evidence to show that this is true. And he said, are you actually in his head? Do you know that he doesn't appreciate you? And I'm like, no. And then he said, how does it make you feel when you have that thought? And I burst into tears and I don't cry that much. I'm not that, you know, I'm not a crier, but it's just so powerful. These stories that we tell ourselves that can become self-fulfilling prophecies you know, and, you know, we. What's the final question in the sequence? Uh, the final question is, so um, is it true? Is it really true? Who would, uh, how does it make you feel when you have that thought or tell that story to yourself? Who would you be without it? And what's the turnaround? So in that scenario, I said, he doesn't appreciate me or he doesn't value me. The turnaround is looking at it in 360. So it actually is, I don't value myself in that scenario. It was, I didn't have enough confidence in myself so it's it's a very simple but powerful tool to use to manage ourselves through these situations so who did you become without it you know the most powerful person in the world is someone who does what they believe and not worries about what other pe people think of them so if i you know everything and i still struggle with it I would be the most powerful person in the world. I would be, you know, in that scenario as well, I would have been a, a more 
I would have been more valuable to him because I, you know, I was not challenging him enough. I was trying to please him. You know, it's just stupid things because I was, is like a, a, a child with a, a father. Don't know what that says about me, but anyway. But, you know, I would have been much, much, a be- much better employee for him or, you know, leader for him if if I was just doing, focusing on what I wanted, what I what I knew was right to do than worrying all the time about whether he appreciated me, you know, and I was spending lots of energy and, you know, thinking about this instead of thinking about what I should have been doing. There's a technical debt that uh, lasts or an emotional debt that lasts when you keep reliving that misery yes. and then experiencing it time and time again, whilst the other person's completely oblivious to it because you're not in their head. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. is. You know, <laughs> Uh, excellent. So, Sarah, uh, you've got a golden ticket, and I think you may have just answered it, but you've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Sarah, age 23. What would you whisper in her ear as uh, a choice bit of advice? Uh, I, I was thinking, so there were three things, really. Follow your heart, not the money. The ones who win are the ones who stay the course. And hard work trumps talent every time. And that's what I've seen. You know, I think there's times in my life where I've quit too soon. And looking back, if I'd have stayed the course, you know, things would have been different. But yeah, and also, you know, money is not what makes you happy. You've got to be following your, you know, that the compass that you need to follow in your life is, you know, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, what makes you happy? Interesting. And again, sound advice. Uh, I, I suspect too few people spend time in introspection to be able to f- find that compass, uh, though they will know that it doesn't feel quite right. Mm. Okay, so what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to? I, I know that you have a podcast. Do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, no, I've, I've had a, a podcast called The Speaking Club uh, since 2017, and I, I uh, do solo shows where I'm sort of teaching people some of the things that I talk about in terms of storytelling, speaking, performance, and so on. But I also have great guests come on the show as well who talk about things which are related to speaking. You're coming on soon. Um, But I do think that speaking is a tool for marketing and selling. You know, I don't just teach people to present. I teach them how to create content and stories that sell their idea or change your product or service or whatever so that's the speaking club and it's sort of around everywhere amazon spotify all those good places but it you know it's about being an authentic speaker so we, i don't want to create robots i want people to be having their personality and a powerful impactful talk very interesting I, i'd love to uh, explore with you the power of a uh, speaker to spark and provoke conversation i remember years back when I was at university, I joined an MLL, MLM cult. And I still remember to this day the impact of man. He came, he did two days training, and you could hear a pin drop. Uh, everyone was hanging on his every word. A guy called George Zalicki. And I still remember, I can picture it now. I can see where I was sat, who I was next to. I can even smell the, uh, the hall we were in. And it was that impactful. And it sparked so much conversation. It was a, a, a watershed moment for me. Okay, so how can people get hold of you? So I have a website, saraharcher.co.uk. If you want to check out the podcast, obviously it's all over the place. We also have a, a website page, thespeakingclub.com. 
but I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, the usual stuff. Happy to connect with people. And if you do want to to check out the Snackable Story Challenge, you can do that at saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. Excellent. Sarah Archer, thank you. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, then please go back, take notes, tag somebody and share it with them. And we'd love to hear your feedback. If you feel the urge, also go on to Apple Podcasts and leave a glowing uh, testimonial or just tell me that I'm a mouthy uh, sod so you should shut up. Either way, I'm perfectly happy. And if you need to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.